through the letter of First Peter. So if you have a Bible, uh, you'll want to turn to chapter 4. We're going to finish chapter 4 today, uh, starting in verse 12. I just want to give you a heads up for next week. We'll, we'll uh, depart from First Peter 4 next week, and the message is going to be from Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So I'm looking forward to that with great anticipation, but I also know that God has blessed the preparation for this message. I think he's got some great encouragement for us today, so I'm eager to bring that to you also. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter 4. Uh, We'll be reading 12 to 19, and the text will also appear on the screen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Oh Lord, (laughs) open this passage to us. It was meant for our encouragement. It's very realistic about the world we dwell in, and, and also it provides a perspective that we won't see just by looking at the world around us. It takes us and points our eyes up to you and to your greatness and to your promises and to all that Jesus will be for us in this life. So would you give us that sense this morning, Lord? Would you open up our hearts and minds to understand it and to apply it to our specific trials and temptations that we face. We ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout my Christian life, I've often wondered how I would do if I really experienced persecution for my faith. There are scenarios that I run through my brain that tempt me to fear Um, And I can relate to something that a woman said to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression. He uh, records a conversation he had with her. He wrote this, she had a little boy of three at the time, and she said, you know, if it really became a question of denying my faith or giving up this boy, I do not know what I would say. I do not think I would be strong enough. I doubt if I would have the courage to put Christ first at all costs or perhaps to suffer death if necessary. Now, she never had been, and indeed might never be, 
put to such a test, but she was conscious of the possibility, and it was depressing her. It is possible for such things so to grip us as to paralyze us completely in the presence. present. I can relate to that. Maybe you can also. We know that Christianity in America doesn't any longer contain the uh, favor that it once did. There are scenarios now where persecution is a very real possibility. We know that. We see that. You read the news, you're aware of that. And so that can tempt us to fear like this woman. You can imagine scenarios and you put yourself in those scenarios and you say, I don't know if I could handle that if I got there. Well, this passage speaks to that. This passage gives us courage by taking us to realities that are there for every believer. And it's enough for us. The Lord speaks to our fears this morning, and his word to us is, Fear not the fiery trial. Fear not the fiery trial, because when it comes, the Spirit of God will get you through it. That's the promise of this chapter, which we'll unpack as we go through it. Now, I want to mention one thing before we we continue, lest you think this applies only to opposition or persecution because of your faith. In principle, what's here also helps us in any kind of suffering that we endure as a person trying to walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, It applies to other things like chronic pain and illness, emotional turmoil over a wayward child or spouse, or insults for following Christ. In any of those scenarios, the challenge that each of us faces when we get to the trial is, will I trust Christ in this, or will I turn away from him? And there's strength here that says, if you're a believer in Jesus, when you get to that point, you will trust him because God will make sure you do. That's what this passage offers us. He gives us strength today. So with that introduction, let's see what Peter has to say. We'll start with the first word in the passage. He addresses his readers as beloved. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. We shouldn't rush too quickly over a word like that in Scripture. (laughs) Because it sets the tone for all the counsel that follows. Beloved, dearly beloved friends. The the tone is affection. Um, Believers in Christ, you are my brothers, you are my sisters, and you are experiencing various temptations and suffering like I am, and I want you to know I'm with you in that. You're, you're my beloved. And that is an affection that God himself has for every genuine believer. Paul uses the same word in Romans 1.7 as he writes, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Same, same thing, the beloved of God. And that's because if you're a believer in Jesus, you are in Christ. He considers you as to be be one with Jesus. 
He finds you in Christ. And who is Christ? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So if you're in Christ, you're in the beloved, and you are the beloved of God. Genuinely, real affection that God has for you. If he's pleased with Christ, he's pleased with you if you are in Christ. Now, it's important that we have that reminder, especially when we get to verse 17, because there it says it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And that sounds ominous. Uh, That's us. (laughs) And it's talking about us being judged. So we're going to have to remember your beloved when we get to that text Um, and also before it. You are the beloved of God, and the time to remember that is especially when you're going through a fiery trial on your road of obedience to Christ. So let's talk about the fiery trial. The first thing Peter says about it is this, that the fiery, fiery trial is not unexpected. The fiery trial is not unexpected. Beloved, this is verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Uh, The King James Version says, Think it not strange when you suffer. Uh, Suffering as a Christian is not strange. It's expected. It's part of the deal when you join up with Jesus. There's there's pain involved in in that, which is why it's a fiery trial. It burns when you're going through it, physically or emotionally. Lots of texts tell us that we should expect expect that. Here's just a few. Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's taking up a cross of suffering as you follow Jesus who took up his cross of suffering and atonement for our sins. So there's a cross to bear. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He hates you. 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We could go on with many texts like that. So it really shouldn't be a surprise when you suffer as a Christian. That is not strange. The Bible never tells us that that's supposed to be easy. But we've had it pretty easy in Western culture for a very long time. You can be a faithful Christian and not that much happens to you, at least that's our history. And that has made it possible to not really take these texts all that seriously. We think, well, yeah, that applies to somebody in like Sudan, North Korea, but not here in America. Well, things are getting back to normal. That's what's happening. Things are going back to the way that they've always been in most of the church, in most of the world, for most of history. (laughs) This is normal and not strange. And yet, the church thrives under those conditions. I, I was reading a I think it was Voice of the Martyrs magazine. And it says that the fastest growing church in the world right now, in terms of population of the country, is in Iran. (laughs) Because they're sick 
of all the killing that's going on in the name of Allah. And they want to know about the God who comes and is killed for us. And by the thousands, they're desperate for Bibles. In Iran, <laughs> the church thrives in those conditions. Peter says, don't be surprised. That's to be expected, the fiery trial. It's part of the deal. And that's actually for our encouragement to, to know that we should expect it. Because it would be very discouraging to think that something strange is happening. That I can't find this in the Bible anywhere. Nobody told me this was going to happen. It's totally different from what I'm reading here. That would be discouraging to think I'm outside of God's will. Or, or his promises aren't true. This Bible is a fairy tale. That would be super discouraging to not be warned. Um, I picture it this way. Suppose you were one of those people delivering packages for Amazon. I see these around once in a while. A guy comes up to your house. He's just got his regular personal car. He gets out, and he's coming to your front door with something, and you're like, who is this guy? I don't know you. And he's got a package from Amazon. There's like this niche market where you can make money delivering things to people's door instead of UPS or FedEx. Who knew that? I mean, you got to check that out, see if that makes money. Um, but people are doing it. So let's say you sign up for this, you get a package to deliver to somebody's house, and you've got the address, and you think you're going to go there, and it's going to be a nice neighborhood, and I'm just going to ring the doorbell and leave the package, and I'm going to take off. Great, easy job. But let's say that you go out and you drive there, and you find out it's a rough neighborhood. There's, there's bars in the windows. <laughs> there's a growling dog in the yard. There's suspicious-looking people lurking about. You, you wonder if there's a drug deal going on here. You feel very unsafe, right? <laughs> you weren't ready for that. <laughs> so the temptation could be, you know, let somebody else deliver the package. I'm out of here. But what if the boss that sent you on the delivery was really a great person who you knew had your best interests in heart? And let's suppose that boss warned you ahead of time. And he said, you know what? I'm going to send you into a rough neighborhood with this package. I won't say that there's no risk, but the package that you're delivering is super important for the people that it's going to. Really, really important package. And I won't send you there. I wouldn't send you there unless I knew that it was going to be okay, that everything's going to work out. So armed with that information, you'd go into that scenario and say, okay, this might be rough, but I'm going to get through this. Right? God is that boss for us Christians. You are his beloved. <laughs> there isn't anybody more concerned for your welfare than God is. And he proved it by putting his son on a cross to die in your place so that you could be forgiven, so that you could go with him to heaven forever. He does care about you. And he says, I'm sending you into a rough neighborhood. It's called the world that's fallen into sin. I won't say there's no risk. I won't say that it's easy. But I will get you through it. And the package that you're delivering, 
is the most important thing that there is. It is the news that Jesus Christ can rescue you. It is the hope of eternal life embodied in you as a messenger with your words, with your presence, with your actions. So that's why it's worth going into the rough neighborhood. But I will tell you that it's going to be okay. That brings us to the second thing Peter has to say about the fiery trial, which is that God will send help for your fiery trial the moment you need it. God will send help for your fiery trial the moment you need it. This is the subject of verses 13 and 14. Peter says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's a promise for God's help in the moment of your suffering. So here's the logic of it. You share in some trial that Christ has suffered. The example that's given here is of being insulted for the name of Christ. So you experienced something like he experienced when they called him a gluttonous man and a drunkard. When they said to him, you, you blasphemer. When they said to him, he, you cast out demons by the prince of demons, not by God. So you're insulted. And you're feeling something that Christ must have experienced when he was insulted. You share in his sufferings. Being insulted for Christ is a fiery trial, according to Peter, which is important for us to know because that means a fiery trial is not just the extreme forms of persecution. It's not just like being imprisoned or threatened with your life. It's also the lesser things like being insulted Just because you believe something that somebody else doesn't like. That's a fiery trial. Because it burns. It hurts. Whatever it is. And Peter says, when you get to that moment, when it hurts, you can actually rejoice because you are blessed, he says. You're blessed. Now that sounds crazy. The very reason we fear suffering for Christ is because we see pain as taking away our joy and taking away our blessing. That's why we're bothered by it. But Peter says, you know what, when you get there, you'll be blessed. (laughs) You will actually be able to rejoice when you get there. That sounds crazy. So we better have something really good to back that up with. (laughs) And he does. He says, here's why you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In that moment of trial, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's a promise that when your faith is tested, God will be there and God will be enough. His spirit will give you all you need for the moment. The imagery of the spirit of God resting upon you is drawn from Isaiah Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, 
where it refers to the Spirit resting on Jesus. I'll read that text. Uh, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So when the Spirit of God rests upon you in your trial, why is that a good thing? It means you can trust Him to show you what to do because He is the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. If you need wisdom in the moment, wisdom is available. Wisdom will be given to you. It means that you will receive the strength that you need to endure Because He is the Spirit of counsel and might, His power is what will get you through it, not your own. We worry because we think, my resources aren't enough. And that's right, they're not. But other resources will be given to you. The very Spirit of God empowering you to get through it. For the Spirit to rest on you means your faith will not fail because He is the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will keep you. Peter says, you can expect this kind of help in the hour of your testing. You may imagine that you won't be able to handle it if what you fear actually happens, but God says if it does happen, you will get through because of the Spirit of glory and of God resting on you. There's a great illustration of this truth. It came from Corey Tenboom. Some of you know that name. So Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian. She helped Jews escape out of Nazi Germany during the war. And she herself went to a concentration camp because of that. And when she was a little girl, uh, she was saying this to a, a, an audience later on in her life, when she was a little girl, she was worried that she wouldn't be able to endure suffering for Jesus if, if she was put to the test. And her father, who was a very wise man, uh, gave her advice. And so she was relating the conversation she had with her dad. Here's what she said. Daddy, she said one day, I'm afraid that I will never be strong enough to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. Tell me, her father wisely responded, When you take a train trip from Harlem to Amsterdam, when do I give you the money for the ticket? Three weeks before? No, Daddy, you give me the money for the ticket just before we get on the train. That is right, he replied. And so it is with God's strength. Our wise Father in heaven knows when you are going to need things too. Today, you do not need the strength to be a martyr. But as soon as you are called upon for the honor of facing death for Jesus, he will supply the strength you need just in time. I took great comfort in my father's advice, Corey told her audience. Later I had to suffer for Jesus in a concentration camp. He indeed gave me all the courage and power I needed. God promises, us, promises to give us what we need in the moment we need it. Whatever it is, on the path of obedience. Looking ahead, you might think it's impossible to go through your worst case scenario, but God makes the impossible possible by the Spirit of God resting on you. 
Corey Ten Boom is just one example. There are many others. I think of Jim Downing of the Navigator's Ministry. He was on one of the battleships in Pearl Harbor when it was attacked. He expected to die any minute, but he said in his book about it, my fear melted away, replaced by the most overwhelming sense of peace I'd ever felt. (laughs) Another example is a man named Peter. I didn't catch his last name, but he's a field leader for the Voice of the Martyrs. He was imprisoned by ISIS for 15 months. He was only released about a year and a half ago. And he was in there with other ISIS members who had fell out of favor, drug traffickers, all sorts of terrible people. It was terrible conditions. Mice were running all over him. He was deprived of sleep. Here's what he said. I found that I was peaceful and joyful in prison. I can say that I was experiencing an amazing time with the Lord. (laughs) Those are examples of the spirit of glory and of God resting upon you in the moment of your trial. So let's review your situation if you're a follower of Christ. Here's what the Lord wants us to know for our encouragement. Indeed, for our joy. We know that it's not strange to suffer as you seek to obey God. You should expect that. And that might tempt us to fear, and we might ponder possibilities of what could happen to us. But only one of two things can happen if you are in Christ and if you are the beloved of God. The first is that the thing you fear will not actually happen. (laughs) So your fear is a false alarm. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, We manufacture troubles for ourselves by anticipating future ills which may never come, or which, if they do come, may be like the clouds, all big with mercy and break with blessings on our head. We get supposing what we should do if such and such a thing occurred, which thing God has determined shall never occur. We imagine ourselves in positions where providence never intends to place us. And so we feel a thousand trials in fearing one. So the thing you, may, you fear may not happen, which means you shouldn't fear it. And secondly, if it does happen, you shouldn't fear it because God promises to get you through it. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's reality. That's promised. God is committed that you should experience the truth of Isaiah 43, 2. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Strength will be given you for your fiery trial. So fear not the fiery trial if you share in Christ's sufferings. So are you afraid of being called a bigot and a hater because you believe what the Bible says about human sexuality? God says that flame will not consume you. It won't. Are you afraid that you'll not be able to handle it if you lose your job because you wouldn't follow unethical business practices? God says, I will get you through that. I'm your provider, not them. Are you afraid that you'll be crushed if your child goes astray 
Or if you get cancer or your chronic illness persists, that flame will not consume you either because you're the beloved of God. He promises it won't because the spirit of glory and God will rest upon you in those times. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It is, after all, a fiery trial. It does hurt, but you don't need to fear whether or not you're going to make it through because you will. God's strength is going to be there. Most of our fear comes from thinking that we won't be able to handle it if it comes. But we have God's promise right here that says, if it comes, you will be able to handle it because God is going to handle it. (laughs) His Spirit's going to be on sight to do what you cannot do. The help is going to come. So here's the application for us now while we're tempted to fear the future. I do think that our current experience of peace is directly related to whether or not we believe the promises of God now. In other words, the way we deal with our fear of future suffering is to cultivate belief in the character and in the promises of God. God will get you through the suffering itself. He promises that. That's by his sovereign act. But your life up until that moment may feel very weak and very full of unrest and and worry and without joy. And what will give you strength and peace and joy in the time before the suffering is to believe the character and the promises of God for the suffering. To believe that he's going to be there. To believe that when you get to the thing you fear, God is going to be there. We believe that now. We fill our hearts now with the promises of God. We seek the Spirit's empowerment in our life today to change our experience of the now. (laughs) Because God's already got the suffering part taken care of. Now, and he's with you now, right now, let's cultivate belief that he will be there and that he is with us today. That's an application. Isaiah 26.3, good verse to memorize. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Peace is the product of trust. Worry is the product of lack of trust. Two people can read the same terrible news. One melts in fear and worry. The other one remains unruffled. Why? Because of what we believe about God. Do we believe that we have a God who manages and controls our suffering? Who genuinely has our best interests in heart and will not forsake us? Or do we believe we have a God who's gone, who's not interested, doesn't care, he doesn't have his hand on the wheel? It depends. Your experience of peace depends on which of those two gods we believe in. We have a God who saves who loves us, who sent his son to make sure that we would get through our trials. Our experience of God's comfort and his power are directly related to whether we walk by faith or by sight. And faith says, that thing that I have in my mind that I'm worried about, if that happens, the spirit of God and of glory will rest on me. And that will be enough. Here's the encouragement for those of you like me who struggle with unbelief, who struggle with worry. 
The promise of God's help in your trial is certain whether your faith is weak or strong. Faith as small as a mustard seed is enough, as long as it's in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. <laughs> I like the illustration of uh, Christian and Hopeful in the book Pilgrim's Progress. You should read that if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress. It's amazing. Bunyan wrote it in prison, by the way, <laughs> where he was for about 12 years for preaching the gospel. So he has this illustration towards the end of the book where Christian and Hopeful come to this river. It's a very deep river. It's very scary. The other side of it is the celestial city. That's representing heaven and the future glories. So they have to cross the river. You can't get to the celestial city without going through the river of death. So they start to wade into it. Hopeful, of course, is full of hope. Hope is, he, he just oozes out of him. He's having no trouble crossing the river of death, but Christian gets paralyzed all of a sudden with fear. He starts to remember his life, and oh no, they're not. It's not for me. I'm not going to make it across. And hopeful's got to kind of shore him up and point him back to promises. But they both cross. They both get to the other side. Their experience in the trial was different because of their different levels of faith. But they were accepted on the other side, not by the level of their faith, but the fact that their faith was in Christ, in the Lord of the city. They were both sure to get across because of that. So if you're a person who struggles like I do with unbelief, and you still worry about things, just remember, God's promise is not conditional on the level of your faith, just that it is faith even if it's a struggling faith. He's going to get you through, even if right now you don't know if he will. <laughs> but it's his promise, his sovereign act. All right, Peter gives us one more reminder to strengthen us for the fiery trials. This one might seem less important than the one we discovered, but it is helpful as you're suffering for Christ. It's helpful by comparison. So here's the point. It's the fiery trial of the Christian is better than the alternative. The fiery trial of the Christian is better than the alternative. This is in verses 15 to 18. We won't have time to go into detail of all that's here, but I don't think we'll have to to get the main point. He starts out by saying in verses 15 and 16, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So he introduces a different category of suffering here, which is not suffering for Christ, but suffering for sin as a murderer, an evildoer. Suffering for a Christian is not something to be ashamed of. Suffering as a murderer or a thief or something like that, that is something to be ashamed of. The spirit of glory and of God is not resting on you in that kind of suffering. <clears throat> That's not the badge of honor. The badge of honor is to suffer for Christ. But this thought about this other kind of suffering for sin seems to lead Peter into a new territory, which is the big picture look at the church as a whole going through suffering for Christ. And he compares the suffering of the church to the suffering of those who are not part of the church, who are not the beloved of God. And this is where we read this somewhat ominous 
verse 17 and 18. Here, here they are again. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become of the, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, what does he mean by all of that? Does, does he mean to scare us? Um, by saying things like judgment begins at the household of God, which is us, which is the church. Uh, by saying things like the righteous is scarcely saved. Is that a threat? Um, is he telling them and us we better watch ourselves or else God is going to condemn us? That can't be where Peter is going with this because of the context. These are the beloved of God we're talking about. These are people saved by grace. These are the elect exiles. These are the ones that have an imperishable inheritance reserved in heaven for you. So he can't be threatening them with with judgment in a condemnation kind of way. And besides that, the immediate context shows these verses are a reason for what Peter says in verse 16. He said, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name for or because it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God and so on. So these verses are about why we are not to be ashamed. They are not verses intended to make us ashamed. So what do they mean? Simply put, it just means it's better to suffer for Christ than to suffer without Christ. The fiery trial of the Christian is better than the fiery trial of the non-Christian. After all is said and done. You see, the judgment that God brings on the church, the household of God, is the purifying pain of Christian suffering. It's a purification Though God's, it's through it, God is, is separating the wheat from the chaff. Through it, he's proving those who are genuinely his. He's like chapter 1. He's testing the genuineness of your faith. And it hurts. Nobody wants to go through that. We are scarcely saved, which is better translated, saved through difficulty. God's purifying us. He's making us more like Christ, and that hurts. But it will be much worse for the non-believer. If these kinds of things happen to us, to God's beloved, then what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He doesn't answer his question there, but we know from other scriptures what the outcome will be. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Matthew 25, 46. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 31. That's the comparison that Peter's making here. Yes, it's hard to suffer as a Christian, but don't be ashamed of that. It's a badge of honor. God gives glory and rewards for that. The alternative is to suffer not as a Christian, and that gives way to eternal punishment. It's far worse to suffer condemnation than purification. Much better to suffer for the gospel than to suffer as one who does not obey the gospel. That's the comparison that he's making here. 
So if you ever feel like, you know, it's, it's rough, I don't know, I, I'd like to take an easier road. <laughs> Maybe this Jesus thing isn't really it. <laughs> this is just a little helpful reminder. It's, the grass isn't greener on the other side. <laughs> it's actually burnt. Yeah, it's real. That's the real deal. Let me close with one last thing, just a question. What do you do when you are going through a fiery trial? Here's what you do, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's what we do. You trust yourself and your life to God. You trust that your suffering is according to God's will, that he has a purpose in it, a good purpose consistent with his love, and you let him bear the responsibility for your well-being because that's what a Savior does. He saves. It's his job to rescue us. And he is that. He's called himself that. So we entrust ourselves to him and we keep on doing good, even when it hurts. One old pastor said it this way. I found it in a book called Mondays with My Old Pastor, this guy who had retired for like 50, he'd been 55 years in ministry, now retired, and this new young pastor is going to him for advice. Right? So here's some advice that the older pastor gave to the younger one. He said, a long time ago, I came to a very logical conviction. Why should I worry? It's not my responsibility to think about myself. My responsibility is to think about God. It's God's responsibility to think about me. And He is. He is thinking about you. Jesus took us on as His responsibility when He became our Redeemer, just as Boaz took on Ruth and began to care for her, so it is with God. So we can entrust our souls to God, friends. We can trust his hand in our suffering. We can leave it all in his hands and move forward and do good and let God take care of the results. What looks like good or bad, he's got that. And in the moment of suffering, the spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you, and that will be enough. Let's pray. This is good news, Lord, that you're that committed to your own glory because you call yourself our Savior for us to fall short of salvation would not reflect well on you. And you are committed to your own glory, which comes by means of our joy. So, Lord, thank you for giving us a reason for being joyful, even when circumstances are bad. Thank you, Lord, that we can only have nothing to worry about or something in which the situation is hard and you give us what we need during that. Um, thank you, Lord. We can't lose. Not with you. May you get the glory through Jesus. Amen.